This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. But right, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on a Thursday afternoon. 403-974-TALK is our number. We'll have more time for your calls and your texts. Got some other issues to get to later in this hour. But look, let's get into an issue we're going to be talking a lot about in the coming days because May 1st is the first anniversary, the one-year anniversary of the devastating fire that hit Fort McMurray. And uh, certainly a lot has changed since then. The community has bounced back in many ways, but certainly the scars remain. I think we remember it well, uh, especially those, of course, who were there. Not only those who evacuated, but, of course, those who were tasked with trying to halt the beast as it became known. Well, three of the individuals who were a part of that uh, have shared their experiences, shared some amazing images. And a new book, it's called Into the Fire, The Fight to Save Fort McMurray, a first-hand account of battling the beast. Joining us in studio are the authors of this book, all Fort McMurray firefighters, Jaron Hawley, Graham Hurley, Steve Sackett. Gentlemen, thanks for coming in here today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right, so you're all Fort McMurray firefighters, right? You bet. Uh, how long for each of you? Uh, this is Steve, eight years. Yeah, for me, Jaron, it'll be coming up three years in September. And myself, Graham, four years. Four years. Um, so let's go back to May 1st of last year. What, what, what was the first indication that there was a, a real problem? For, uh, actually, it was May 3rd when the evacuation happened. Yeah. Uh, May 1st was the initial fire. Um, people were still in the city. Uh, May 3rd was the full-on evacuation when everyone left. Um, for me, it was uh, just walking my dog that morning. I was going in go I was supposed to go into nights that evening and uh once we seen that uh smoke in the southern uh part of the city, uh it started to reach city limits. Um so I got dropped off at the nearest fire hall and uh there was already members there, five or six guys that were off duty that knew that uh we were going to get ready for a a pretty big day. Right, cuz I mean, you know, there there's a lot of forest around the community obviously, so dealing with forest fires is certainly not not unheard of. So even by, you know, May 1st, May 2nd, did this seem like the kind of forest fire that that you guys had dealt with before? Well, it it was a busy spring. Uh yeah. days leading up to the this main fire, we were fighting fires on the west side of town and the north side of town. We were able to take control of those ones. But it was just so dry that you knew we needed some rain before something was going to change. And then all the while, the big one was 10 miles south. And it moved fast. And it moved fast when it did come to town. It was right now. Uh, so at what point did it become obvious then that this was going to be a, you know, an unprecedented situation? Uh, for myself, it was... Uh, uh, you know, I was down in the Rona parking lot. I was gathering some supplies to be building a fence. And before I could walk into the store, I was sort of transfixed by what I saw on the horizon. And I saw a lot of, uh, or like a high volume of turbulent smoke kind of pushing itself out of the horizon, which meant it was either close, fast, or both. And what really startled me was everybody in the parking lot was doing the same thing. They were either filming it on their phones or they were just stuck in a gaze along the horizon. And that made the hair on my neck stand up a bit. And that's when I knew to go home and get the uniform on and go to work. Well, and that work continued, right? I mean, it, you Absolutely. guys were going for days straight, right? And that was basically from May 3rd on? Yeah, essentially, like, the first, you know, three days were the heck, most hectic. Uh, you know, um, the fire, as Steve said, it was so so dry. I mean, the the best way I can explain it is, you know, if you have a 
two fields, one that, you know, normal, uh, if you had rain on it or whatever, and you filled it with gasoline, and then the ones, the conditions of Fort McMurray at that time, and throw a match on it, they both ignited at the same time. It was just fuel load, and yeah. it was dry, and it caught fast. And so what was the priority in the initial days? Uh, initially, we went up to Beacon Hill, the first area, and it was an evacuation, helping people get out of that area. Uh, lives come first, and then saving property comes right. second. Well, and, you know, people remarked at the time, and, I mean, it's just amazing looking back on it now, how, how smoothly that, that evacuation went. You're talking about tens of thousands of people you know, I, getting them out of the community. Well, absolutely, and I just want to point out quickly, like, that, that's a huge badge on the shoulder of uh, Fort McMurray and its citizens. Everybody works in industry. Everybody has some idea of muster points and safety. Right. Like, they're able to get out of there and keep their heads cool. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so then it becomes, once you got the, the town evacuated, you're basically trying to hold off this fire, right? And initially, it's not about pushing the fire back or putting out the fire. It's, it seemed to be about basically saving the community, right? Absolutely. And one of the tactics that we, us three were on, we were doing on a sprinkler truck. And basically, we were just trying to hold a line from the, um, basically from the uh, houses where the trees were. And at some points, we thought we had success. And then all of a sudden, uh, the height of the fire would throw embers two streets down. That would start up. Yeah. You know, get in the eaves with dry leaves and it'd start that house on fire. So you'd have to drop, reevaluate, go two streets down, put a line there. You know, uh, our, one of our uh, training officers, he was our like, captain for that time, Dave Tovey. He, uh, you know, at one point he jumped up on a uh, roof of a house, took that personal sprinkler from that uh, property and threw it on top of the roof, and we followed suit, and that's what we had to do, right? It's th- you know, I mean, through it all, you know, I mean, you try to catch a couple hours sleep here and there, you had to find something to eat at some point or even just something as mundane as using the bathroom in the midst of being surrounded by this massive fire. I mean, how did, how did you do that? Oh, you just make do with what you have. Yeah. Kind of just became the wild west a little bit. Yeah. Just, you know, in, in houses, businesses, wherever you could, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And we, I mean, were you getting any sleep in those days? Uh, the first few days there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of sleep. There was an area downtown set up called Mac Island where we had our staging. Yeah. And they had a lot of army cots set up for anybody could go down there and get some rest. But those first few days, you just didn't want to rest. You felt too guilty watching all of everyone else working. And you, you knew if you were sleeping, someone else was working. Yeah. So you didn't want to quit. Uh, look, I mean, there's an inherent danger in being a firefighter to begin with. But what kind of challenges were you faced with then in, in dealing with something like this? I think just the overwhelming shock of it all um, is probably what's going to, in in some ways that's a hidden danger because it's going to knock off your sense of balance. It's going to knock off a lot of your ability to assess risk, uh, especially with uh, sleep fatigue. And then like, yeah, you have the um, obvious risks of there's a bunch of machinery rolling around in the dark, people swinging tools, uh, operating power tools, kicking down fences, what have you. A lot of that's done on no sleep in the dark, yeah. In the mud. And I guess, you know, when you're dealing with any kind of fire, I, I, I presume you, you got to take it just kind of one thing at a time, right? You just focused on the task at hand without sort of thinking about the big picture. But I mean, when dealing with something like this, at some point after a few days, did it start to sink in that? I mean, are we going to get a handle on this? What's the end game here? Are we going to be able to beat this? Yeah. Did you start to have those kind of thoughts? There was a low point there for me where you do start to wonder, like, 
are we going to get ahead of this? Or at what point do we say everybody's out? You know, now it's just buildings. But I found when I got to that point, um, like these two sitting beside me and your captains and your leaders kind of remind you to keep going. And and you you know why. It just you hit those low points now and then, but you just keep pushing forward. How long before there was any kind of sign of, you know, maybe we've, we've turned a corner here. How long until you started to, to get a little optimistic? Uh, for me, that was a point, uh, as you'll read in the book, when the big fight kind of came to Prospect Drive. It's a newer area. It, it was either the second or third night. And uh, that was the first time we started to get a real handle on how this fire was operating. And we also had an army of support with us. We had dozer operators. We had water truck drivers. We had all like an army of utility workers. Uh, at this point, we even had the homeless uh, making food for us at Mac Island. We had people like the fire uh, fighters from sites and stuff helping us out. And everybody had been there long enough and we were organized enough to kind of draw a line in the sand that finally held. And that feeling is indescribable. It was the first time we were able to swing back in that. I mean, we felt like we owned the city. Yeah. So how long until you were all finally able to say, you know, our job is done? At what point were you finally off the job, essentially? We got uh, sent down to a uh, local hotel um, in Taganova Park. It's just north of the city limits. And uh, we had a fire department meeting there. And that was kind of just like, hey, guys, like the worst is over right now. Yeah. Great job. And then we got back to normal, uh, the normal that we were searching for from since May first or May third, sorry. And uh, you know, uh, Graham, we're all on three different shifts. We didn't know each other that well before the fire, but we just made that wolf pack. So Graham was off right away, and then we stayed. Uh, I think it was four extra days on my shift, and then I went back to my hometown of Cape Breton. But at that time, it was like a weight off your shoulders. You know, like the city was still uh, empty. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just emergency service personnel and whatnot, but um, it was gone. Like the fire was uh, was out of the city, and that 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 was a big day for us, big day for me. Right, because I mean, you know, firefighters live in this community too. Right? It's not like your your heroes coming in from somewhere else. Like everybody else, you, you live there too. It's your home too, and you got to pick up the pieces and try to figure out what next, just like everybody else, right? So then, top of battling this fire, then you got to deal with what everybody else is dealing with. So what was that side of it like? Well, just just to go back on that too, not just firefighters, and we we keep saying this, and people don't like when they think of the fire, they think of firefighters, police. Yeah, we 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 know that, but there's people there that, as I said, they're used to pushing dirt on a yeah. site, and that's it. These guys were literally driving over houses, dozens of houses, with fire underneath them, to the point where it got so hot, we were spraying. We we stopped spraying houses and had to spray the hydraulic equipment. Because it was that hot, and these guys are in the equipment, fighting. Yeah, and like they w- whatever they we needed them to do, like whatever our leaders wanted them to do, they d- they didn't hesitate. You know, do you need a break? No. What do you need from me? And like that that story needs to be told. So, where did the idea for the book come from? Well, you want that, Steve? Well, we just started uh, from day one. So much happened that it was hard to put everything in your mind in order. Yeah. So when we'd get a break, we'd stop and just, Graham would pull out his phone and we'd just make notes of where we'd been that morning, that afternoon, that night. So then we had this skeleton made by the end of the fire, just of notes. 
And after everything slowed down, the three of us went our own ways and put our own body to that skeleton. And then the idea of a book was just natural with three separate stories. And then our, we stumbled upon a publisher and they put the flow to it and made it a, a book. Yeah, it, it's weird because I'd imagine something like that where you vividly remember all of it. But if you had to sit down after the fact without notes to try to think what you were doing on what certain day, it would just all be just a, a huge blur, I would think, right? If it wasn't for those notes, I'd, it would all be a jumbled mess for myself. Yeah. And doing it that early, we were able to, I think, capture the emotion of what we were feeling at the time because it's still fresh in your mind. Or if I was to do that now, I'd be kind of guessing at what I was feeling at the time. Right. Uh, now, look, this is a very visual book, too. There's some just incredible and stunning pictures. So were these pictures you guys took, pictures you got from, from others? Uh, yeah, so basically um, a good percentage of the photos came from our cell phones. Another good percentage came from a uh, captain on our shift who we didn't work with, but he contributed, uh, Captain Troy Palmer. And uh, some of the other photos came from uh, Cody... Havens. Cody Havens from the Edmonton Fire Department, which... Uh, this guy came up on his own accord, found his way onto our truck, and just worked with us. And he's a good friend of Steve's. And then uh, Fort McMurray Fire Department alumni, Doug Noseworthy, also contributed photos. And in, as far as how they were picked, it was just kind of an agreement between the publisher and ourselves, what they wanted and what they felt was appropriate and kind of the ones we really wanted to get in there. So once you sit down and you start putting all of this together, the stories, the pictures, you, I mean, you're, you're reliving it all. Was that, was that difficult? Was that almost therapeutic in a way? What was that experience like? I found it uh, very therapeutic Yeah, to be able to just put all the puzzle pieces back in order and then to be able to read Jaren's and Graham's and uh, see that their feelings were the same as I felt and just uh, solidified that what I felt was real. Yeah. Do you guys agree with that? 100%. Yeah. Couldn't say it better. What do you want people to get from it? The uh, same thing, I hope. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that. You stole my words. The same thing. That's kind of the, the goal is that we can uh, give them that piece of the puzzle. I mean, on the one hand, we didn't know what it was like to evacuate, but if we can offer some closure to some people of what went on during that time, then I think we've fulfilled our goal. Like if we're faced with a similar situation again in the future terms of, you know, the lessons we learned from that experience, uh, maybe changes in Fort McMurray itself, w would it be different? Is it going to be different next time if it happens again? Well, I mean, you learn from every experience. If it's a one house that's on fire that we, you know, go to, or if it's a, a big event like this, I mean, you, lo you look at Alberta in general, um, the last 10 years have been so significant for natural disasters. Yeah. I mean, every experience that you go through, you take the negatives, you take the what ifs, and you just apply that to uh, what next, right? And I think that if, uh, you know, tragedy was to strike Fort McMurray again, personally, I know I'd be willing to go back with the guys that were by my side and the people in the community just for the simple fact of the pride and the courage and what people shown back then to get through it. That's a big thing I've noticed and what I've, I've heard from people and read about. I mean, you talk about the bond within the fire department, just kind of that bond in the entire community of everyone having gone through this. Wait, I mean, what's that like? And what, what are things like there a year later? Well, in some ways, you know, I, I think there's a good chunk of the population that feels like they can't escape it. 
right, to a certain extent. But I think what people have to realize is there's going to be highs and lows and, like, this battle, like, what we did in the book is the smallest portion of the wildfire. I mean, the biggest battle is yet to come. And there's going to be highs and there's going to be lows, but we all have this one thing in common. We're a family now. And, you know, if we want to move forward, it's up to us to kind of keep keep it together, rely on each other, and make this, you know, even better than it was before. That's the Alberta way, right? Like, it's what we got to do. Yeah. Well, the book is called Into the Fire, The Fight to Save Fort McMurray. Jared Hawley, Graham Hurley, Steve Sackett. Uh, thanks so much, guys, for this, and appreciate coming in here today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. All right. So we'll take a quick break here. Rob Breckenridge with you. This is Afternoons on News Talk 770. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.